Welcome to What's Happening in 40K. Your daily dose of all things Warhammer 40,000. Each day, Monday through Friday, we explore the Warhammer 40,000 tournament scene. And bring you the latest news, updates, and opinions. So, whether you're a seasoned veteran or a newcomer to the hobby, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us as we delve into the world of 40K. Here's your host, Mufasa. Alright ladies and gentlemen, I am back with another episode and today we are joined once again by Malik Amin Rubio. Hopefully I said it that time, said it correctly that time Malik, how did I do? Perfect, absolutely perfect. (laughs) I still stumbled over the sentence, I just got the name part of the sentence right, but we are joined again by Malik as anyone who's listened to the episode we did yesterday, we are doing a series of little chats with Malik to get his expert opinion and to mine his brain about topics relating generally to the LGT. So yesterday we did a little bit about the Invitational versus the main event and how he won both of them but approached them slightly differently. And today we are going to do a episode about serial winners. Now what is a serial winner? Well, if we take a look through the list of former champions of the LGT, we'll find that they haven't just won the LGT. They're typically winning serials of events, of many, many events. They are Comrade, who has obviously been around since tail end of 6th, winning minor GTs until first ever LGT. He obviously has won a bunch since then, including the LGT Invitational. We've had Nathan Roberts, who maybe is the exception on this list. He doesn't play so much anymore, but was obviously surrounded by a very high-profile group of people as part of Team England. At the time, he took the second LGT Championship. Mike Porter who is obviously an absolute beast. He's been winning everything all over the place. Chewy, same story, less active now. He's got more responsibilities at home, but a serial winner explicitly through the beginning of 8th and 7th. And then we have yourself, Malik. Won, a, won almost everything, I believe, back when Cali was still a thing. You smashed everyone there. And, of course, more recently, we have Alex Seco, who... I'm assuming he's winning everything in France. I know he, I think he came third in the Wallmaster in the WTC. But the vast majority of the people on that list are familiar names, not because they've won one big event, but because they've won lots of events. And that's the topic of today's conversation. So, Malik, thanks for coming back on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your view of serial winners? Oh, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me back, Zach. And actually, it was um, driven just by a little comment you mentioned about actually who had won the most super majors and some of Innes's most recent successes here. Uh, and just as we were starting to look at the invitational and who was going and who's attending to which part, uh, just really fascinating to see because LGT just attracts all of the big names you know like uh we tend to have absolutely everybody who is used to competing uh, and in particular winning there so um just a, a fascinating little kind of spotlight on on some of these players and uh it is true that it takes so many variables to go right to win a warhammer event if you consider over the course of five six or seven rounds as is most super majors even more at the lgt right but actually somehow uh, some of these players repeatedly do it. 
uh, one time after another. And I think it's something very, very purposeful. And, you know, I feel very grateful to have been alongside many of them, played against them in some of those top tables and started to be able to really see why. Uh, and actually, you know, we are really blessed now in modern day Warhammer that many of these players have podcasts or feature on podcasts. They have coaching service. They have, you know, things where we share, if we think back to actually very early competitive Warhammer, I think actually the thing was to keep stuff to yourself, you know, like uh, to keep any bonus you could find or any way of playing to yourself up until a, a tournament. Whereas now a lot of these players are sharing why they do the things they do and how they approach tournaments. Uh, and I think it's fascinating. And the more people can take the little snippets of what they say, uh, the more successful they will be. I know I have, you know, uh, there, there is no doubt I'm going to listen intently, even if someone totally outside my meta, like Richard Siegler starts to talk, I'm listening, you know. So we want to dive a little bit deeper into them, hopefully talk to you about some of the names that uh, you will all know uh, and go from there. Yeah, I think, you know, straight off the bat, you've made a really good point, which is there's been a massive temporal change in terms of the speed which innovation spread around the world. BCP has been, you know, the driver of this. If somebody wins an event within half an hour, somebody's recorded a podcast all about their list. Back in the day, you know, somebody might go to an event. You know, I was playing tournaments when I was 13, you know, 30 players in a church hall, and their winning list may go on to like Daka Daka maybe six months later or something. You know, that's sort of the speed of diffusion. Yeah. And now it's, it's instantaneously. So let's let's start off by talking a little bit about some of the people we're going to discuss today. And, and you, Malik, can perhaps identify either trends and commonalities between them or perhaps differences, but consistent things for that person. So why don't we start off the top with some of the big names in the UK, Manny, Vic and Ines. Yeah, absolutely. I think just before we go deep into these three, like, I think you've had a, a shift in, in, and you see the errors start to bleed into each other, but like all of these players are absolute monsters, no matter the edition. But um, there's more even outside of the UK. The truth is, I really think, you know, if everybody was able to travel, we might see some of the Polish WTC team here just as dominant um, players from other countries. And I'm, I've no doubt we have lots of other meta. So I'm going to keep to the UK and maybe a little bit touching on the, the US as well. Uh, but I think, you know, from an error perspective, uh, you know, we come, or I, my my 40K comes just off the back of seventh, right at the end of seventh, where really Team England, as you already mentioned, you know, Josh Roberts, Chewy, um, absolute dominant names. And the, the reality is actually Chewy, his record is insane, as you see in terms of number of wins versus actual tournaments played. So uh, whilst he may not be as active, his per win percentage is absolutely crazy. And then you get into an era for eighth and ninth, where really we see Manny, Mike, Vic, uh, absolutely dominant throughout loads of the tournaments. And actually just most recently, uh, you're starting to see the shoots of new players. So uh, you mentioned it already. In fact, he was here throughout the whole thing, uh, but actually probably something he'd say himself really only recently in the very big events started to break through. And that, that's in Inez. Um, and then we've seen Dave Naz come to the fore as well, uh, and hopefully some more names. We'll talk a little bit about up and coming. So I think that's kind of the, the UK scene. Uh, in the US, you've probably, everybody will have heard of Richard Siegler. For me, I think the most dominant 40 clay player we've seen, uh, you know, not far behind in Sean Naden and in a very particular play style. Um, and then you've got other names, right? Brad Chester, Lennon. Uh, Nick Nanavati, in, in theory, the, the first professional 40K player, his own words. Um, so, yeah, ab absolutely, like, 
those names should be uh, really common to most people. So um, we're going to dive into three of them uh, in particular. And the reason I picked these three was because they represent three particular play styles. So uh, that's really in uh, kind of Inesvik and Mani. So uh, let's kick off with Mani. Uh, Zach, obviously, very, very well known. Uh, you know, I probably would spend half an hour listing all the different tournaments Mani has won. Uh, many of them on a final table versus me, I have to say. Uh, you often tease me about that one. Um, and I think there's, there's you, you mentioned it already in our last podcast, there's a lot of what people can see, which is obvious around Manny in the sense of his adaptability. Uh, so I think in many of the bet, odds on that you've done, uh, George talks about this as well. So Manny's able to take pretty much any army uh, and play well with it very quickly. So he's not really someone that needs a lot of running uh, to an event. Uh, and he's also someone dedicated and really willing to put something together in a short space of time. Um, and I have to say that in many ways, Manny um, kind of is very similar in my own play style. And, and it is very recognizable, irrespective of what Manny plays. He is a threat saturation player. So uh, he will view lists uh, or concepts and look at what else he can cut away uh, to add another threat, you know. Uh, so I, I like to do this as well. Very often, I will not write a list up to, say, 1,900 points and find the rest. I will write a list up to 2,200 and very slowly chip away about all the little things that, like, I have to lose reluctantly. Um, and often, like, this playstyle may seem a little bit more simple. You know, oh, it's point and click. It's got all the guns or all the fighting. But that, Actually, typically it has a massive weakness in that you lose a lot of control elements. So uh, whether that's mobility, so if you think about Imperial Fists and what they were, actually they had no mobility at all. Uh, durability, if you're playing lots of glass cannons. Um, but actually it's it's a playstyle really uh, dedicated to scoring by overpowering your opponent. So, um, and I think we saw the real flux in Manny going from being a horde player early-ish eighth uh, to a real, real aficionado of this kind of threat saturation uh, process. So not sure if you've seen the same, what your thoughts are, Zach. Yeah, I think the interesting part, as we touched on earlier around like diffusion of ideas, is that even though an idea might spread around the world very quickly, it seems to be trends about different players pick on different ones. Obviously, when there's such a dominant force like Elder have been recently, everyone just goes to it. But Everyone went to Dark Angels at the end of eighth, uh, ninth, beg your pardon, and yet one person won all the tournaments, which is the exact topic of this episode. It's like I think Dark Angels were ten percent of the field, and yet Manny won a hundred percent of the events. So I think this is an interesting point that if your play style, play preference matches the meta army at the time, you end up in this sort of peak of performance that other people who have just quote jumped on the bandwagon aren't able to match. So that's a uh, key thing about Manny's specific play style and the success he's most recently had of course he's still leading the ITC based on that very early season running 100% and I think what's what's really interesting about this is uh, people will often debate about right and wrong um, there was a little period of time where actually you know again Richard Siegler famously known for his admic and Manny myself also playing admic in a very different way uh, and Richard actually did a feature on this around how we will take first turn push all of the planes and try and do critical damage immediately. Uh, whereas he much prefers to chip away along the sides 
and he's looking five turns forward uh, and thinking, well, actually, as long as I achieve these different things, there is no way that my opponent's going to keep up on the scoring rate, even if the board state could look different. And, you know, we could argue it forever uh, around actually, you know, one play style versus the other. One's a little bit more controlled, but potentially susceptible to a big swing turn. Uh, whereas actually, you know, if you push all of your army into vulnerable positions and then that kind of shooting phase or whatever goes wrong, uh, you're going to be in a bad way in return. So um, what I just love about this is um, I think people have one way or another, as in like they, they choose uh, what's the best way. Uh, but in truth, you have people finding so much success in both ways. Indeed. And we have three people that we're talking about today, Manny obviously being the first. One thing that is interesting is while the topic of this episode is serial winners, there is obviously a case where we have serial 1v1s. So you mentioned earlier you unfortunately got the raw end of the deal in your finales with Manny. Somebody who has been on the upper hand of that in his finales with Manny is Innes Wilson. I believe he's undefeated in our Super Major Finals versus Manny. So clearly there is an element to player versus player, and that might relate to play style or might relate to army choice. So what's your view on Innes' record as a serial winner, and if you like, touch on his record specifically versus Manny? Totally. Well, I've, I've actually loved seeing Innes' arc, and even though uh, he can be a bit of a troll online, uh, he is wonderful to play against. So that's another thing that we were talking about, Zach, just you and I before, you know. Um, actually, I think there's a perception of what kind of final table or top table games can look and there, there is the odd time where they're tense but actually nine times out of ten they're an absolute giggle and uh you know just full of people just willing to help each other i don't remember ever having to have an argument you know with someone over a couple of inches or millimeters or intent um and actually i think Inez really shows this you know and certainly my games on top tables has been um so Inez represents uh, the third of our ma uh, major styles we will kind of touch back on Vic in a minute uh, which is a little bit around counter meta, I think. I think, you know, you'd have to ask him, but I think. So what we've seen with Ines is that he is very often thinking a lot around what the other top players are going to play uh, and trying to make sure he has a counter to that, even if sometimes it seems a little bit suboptimal. And he's willing to concede that little bit of efficiency in maybe what is 80% of the games if it ensures he's got a tiny edge in some better games. And I think there's two kind of key bits where we saw this. I think towards the end where we started to see Desolation Marines take hold, whether in Dark Angels or in Iron Hands, um, we started to see Innes pick up like a transport capacity for them, where the rest of us were kind of of the view that Repulsors, Impulsors, all the different kind of Primaris transports type bits were still not worth it, actually. Uh, even in the mirror, you were kind of better off trying to tank some of that damage or, you know, stay out of range, uh, have an apothecary. Uh, and actually, Innes was probably one of the few people we saw, you know, just give himself that little bit of defense against going second because probably, and, you know, it is the case, for example, when we talk about when Manny and I kind of clash, it will be threat saturation versus threat saturations very often. Well, who goes first, you know? Uh, and Innes gives himself a little bit about, I think one of, one of the times I was most impressed with it uh, was just around Void Weavers. When Void Weavers had come out, I think every single one of our impression was that this was the most broken thing we'd ever seen. And that a full Harlequin Void Weaver army could not be beaten 
no matter what, other than by an opposing Harlequin Void Weaver army. Um, and I cannot remember which of the majors, it, super majors, it was, but uh, Innis showed up with a Crusher Stampede that was just absolutely focused on being able to win that match. Uh, so I think you could say that kind of Sean Naden in, in the US plays a little bit like that. Sean's so so uh individual in in himself but we've seen him do those things as well you know he famously took a bit of a hammering at the orc buggies and planes and then the next literally the next tournament he's showing up with witches that are tasked with being able to kill vehicles so they, they pick up i don't know if it was plus one strength or plus one to wound um so i think it's one of innis's key strengths and uh you know he's really really started to uh, come through. He was always doing well, right? He was the type of player that would always get to the top tables and, and potentially not see the big tournaments through. But he has been dominant in Scotland for a long while and has now translated that to really the rest of the country, which is really impressive. Yeah, although you say that, you clearly haven't been around long enough because back in the day, I remember Innes turning up to tournaments with, I think, Assault Centurions when they were famously terrible. Uh, going one and four or something <laughs> and um it's great to see him develop and uh, i believe we did a whole podcast all about you know coming of age in the 40k scene within us um back when we were still like i think in the single digits of episodes so check that out if you want but we have counter meta styles now we have board control styles oh no sorry threat, threat saturation styles and i'm guessing i don't know this i'm guessing you're gonna say control is the next style which is sort of what vic's name known for yeah, you fit the nail on the head. That is Vic's absolute hallmark. And uh, for me, it was fascinating just being on the same team on, as him for years and uh, really uh, winning at the same time, uh, being on the same team, just how differing our views were. And actually, at times, how much it would frustrate Vic uh, because we simply have two totally different play styles. Vic wants as many tools as possible to play the mission. Uh, so this means he's always going to lean heavy into characters, into MSU-style units, into abilities over raw datasheet power. And at times, you will table Vic, but still lose by 20, 30 points. Uh, and that is the real strength in what he does. And I think um, what's really smart about the way Vic plays is just how intentional everything is. Every single little unit has a role in his mind that it needs to do. And that is not always immediately obvious to the rest of us. Um, and he's able to really use or the accumulation of small damage uh, to ensure he still maintains his output. So whereas I will always look at potentially, you know, the ability of one unit to one shot another um, or how quickly I'm going to be able to overrun something, you know, that is dug in. Vic is reliant on actually, no worries, I can take it two, three wounds at a time if I'm also making sure that I'm on the objective, denying my opponent the objective, uh, which is clearly really, really effective. And, you know, at times you can be bowled over just because your output is not quick enough, you know, to stat check an army or, or to keep up with the damage, uh, but clearly extremely successful. And I think you'd say that, uh, you know, Richard Siegel is probably very, very similar, you know, uh, even with his towel, but like short of when he kind of went to the bro hammers type iron hands. And even that list was a lot about control, uh, although it had some raw output. Um, so just, just hugely impressive. Uh, but again, fascinating to see that it does not mean uh, it is the only way to play. And of course, all of that control comes 
with a high degree of risk, you know, uh, small mistakes can be extremely punishing. So um, really, really interesting. Uh, you know, I think it's a it's a play style that's really admired, uh, rightly so. Uh, it makes for slightly longer games, more interesting games. Uh, but definitely, you know, one of the three kind of uh, major play styles that we see across all of these winners. Yeah, I think it's also the most appealing to watch as a spectator. You know, I spend a lot of my time at events spectating. Typically, there's not a lot to do when everything's going right. I tend to be bored when I'm running events, so I spend a lot of time watching. And I remember watching many of Vic's games, but one immediately springs to mind, which was against Ben Jones of Vanguard Tactics. And Vic had just brought his uh, Barrowroth and Swooping Hawk list to the fore. And he beat Ben. And at the end of it, Ben just sort of looked at me and just said that there was nothing I could do. And he basically meant it was like, didn't mean matter what he did in that game, he couldn't stop Vic from scoring. And ultimately, Vic went on to win that Super Major. That's surprise, surprise. That list then became popular around the world. And, uh, you know, it's a real testament to like how exciting it was to watch because you're watching and you're like, what's going on? I think there's lots of players that, that, that have aspects of that. And there's lots of players that play all three of these play styles. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think that differentiates these specific players, these serial winners, from other people that have the same same style of play? Like, what makes these people different? Totally. So I think that that's the next step. You know, there's players that have won events. And, and by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There is other serial winners around. But um, I think that's where some of them, we talk about preparation, we talk about raw talent you know like player skill people's ability to see stuff um and actually i think sometimes you can see raw talent by what people can see when they're standing by the table so spectating like you say there's times where like you're you're to the side of a table having a conversation and you know you can immediately spot mistakes or weaknesses and you know these people absolutely will talk to you about them immediately you know well, Sofa Hammer is really easy. So when I watch streams, I'm I'm screaming at the computer or at the TV saying, of course, look, look what you've done. You see, you you know, it's a lot harder at the table. But actually, all of these players' ability to spot the right play uh, is in- incredibly important. But I think one of the things I speak about most and won't labor the point is we know that they, they have, you know, fantastic uh, player skill, but it's about mentality. Um, I was speaking to a player recently who had recently won an event and, I, and for me, that was like, great, this is going to be their breakthrough because they've been going four and one very commonly um, and finally broke through. Uh, it's not a player on my team or anyone, doesn't matter the name. But it was interesting. They were going into another final and just the kind of defeatist type uh, view on whether they could really win it because they were up against, you know, a, a named player, let's say, uh, or, or someone who'd won a lot of events. And I think, you know, um, all of the players on this list uh, will go into a game believing that they can win uh, and making sure that they're in a positive mindset. Uh, so we talked a lot already about how to prepare for an event, all the different things you could do in terms of practice games and also thinking about it. But the next bit is just about belief. And that isn't about tipping into arrogance, uh, but it is about genuinely trusting and backing yourself. Uh, you know, I think... Uh, it takes a lot of will, for example, to play the way Vic does and say, like, I believe that with all these little fragile units, I still I can still win, you know, and I don't need to go into the whatever's most commonly being played at that time. So um, I think that mentality piece is really, really important. 
Um, you know, I had the the kind of pleasure to speak to some of the the US players at, at LVO as well, and you see that as well. You know, um, I remember kind of seeing that in Richard and just when he famously won LVO having, you know, and ITC having, in essence, only the minimum amount of events. But Crusher Stampede had just come out and he was playing a slightly nerfed version of Admech. And there was just no doubt. There was just no doubt in in the way he was talking about and how he saw the different matchups. Um, and then it's all about composure. So we didn't talk much about Mike, who has you know been dominant here in the UK. But, you know, Mike probably leans into all three different play styles in one way or another. Uh, but one of the things that you will see if you see Mike is that he's always almost exclusively composed. The amount of times I've, I've seen him and he's got like Liverpool on his iPad playing uh, with his attention a little bit split, but he's just so relaxed. Um, and, you know, I know for sure, for example, I've lost some really big tournaments uh, because of maybe like small losses of composure. So um, I think, you know, choose a play style, practice. Think about Warhammer, back yourself, uh, and keep composed. Yeah, I think one of the key things you've not mentioned here, which segues into my funny mic stories, I've got a few of them. Um, at the final of Warhammer Fest 2015, I think it was, top table was me versus Mike. And I'd been out the night before with James Tierney and um, James O'Brien, who both of which were involved in uh, the early stages of LGT. And uh, we'd been out quite late and uh, turned up in the morning. And I think it was it had been four games on the Saturday and one on the Sunday, I think. It was So we just had that one game to play. I was playing, um, what was I playing? I think I was playing Eldar with a bunch of D-cannons and Obsec jet bikes. So Mike was playing Ironstar. This is a list I, a matchup I should win 10 out of 10 times. Um, and it got to the end of the game. He'd more or less tabled me, so I split up all my characters, split up all my bikes, jumped them all onto the objectives, and that's game, set, and match. I should have won it. And he looks at me, and he's like, why, why did you do that on turn four? And I looked back at him, and I said, well, Mike, it's because I thought it was turn five. And at which point, he then got his last turn, tabled me completely, and I didn't get a turn five. So one of these things that these serial winners do do regularly is stay composed, but they also tend to not be hungover or drunk at the table, which can be a problem for some players. But um, you've mentioned there raw talent can differentiate these people from other people with similar play styles. Let's touch a little bit on brute force. How much have TTS and the ability to get reps changed the game? We've seen a number of high-profile players who many claim have only got there because they're able to practice more than other people. What's your view on getting reps in as a method of becoming a serial winner? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you've got uh, two different approaches to this. Uh, I used to really believe in the need for practice uh, until I started to lean more and more away as life starts to get busy, but still find success. So um, I think TTS is an absolutely wonderful tool. So uh, first and foremost, it gives you the opportunity to kind of play an army without having to commit to it and buy it beforehand. You know, not everyone loves playing with a proxy. You know, for me, proxies are like unacceptable part of the hobby you know like i, I want to play with you know the actual miniatures and uh whilst i understand the importance of so tts has, has bridged that gap and, and that's phenomenal um and what it's also helped is you know players play against other people of their level i think that's what's more important about tts the one other thing i wanted to mention is if you look at this list 
of players, nine out of 10 of them have fantastic opportunities to practice. Uh, and typically, actually, you, what you don't really see is behind all of these names, you've got somebody who's just as good, who's usually a playing partner, you know, uh, again, famously, you know, Richard and John in, in the US, and, you know, Manny's always had Dan there to, to practice with, you know, I feel phenomenally fortunate to have someone of the caliber of Alex to have practiced with for so many games. So TTS is unlocking that for people, right? If you live somewhere remote or where there isn't necessarily that competitive scene, you can get those games in. Um, but I still think that success in Warhammer is all about the thought process that you're able to put into it and how much time you're able to spend just really thinking. And, um, you know, again, if I look back, I feel really fortunate to have won some events where I didn't necessarily even put the army on the table. Um, but actually, all of the conversations we'd had, all of the work we'd done to understand it beforehand, uh, explained to me exactly what it needed to do. So, um, you know, TTS is a, is a powerful tool. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, if you ever ask George, uh, he'll tell you that it's not Warhammer. Uh, and I'm probably of the same ilk. Uh, I need to play and roll dice uh, physically, but uh, definitely a very useful thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think TTS has enabled people to get quality reps in rather than the quantity of reps. And I think that was basically the key behind David Gaylord's real like skyrocketing onto the uh, scene was he had a number of very high quality people to play regularly against, both in real life and on TTS. And he touched on that in the episode we did with him earlier this year as well. So let's get on to some other up and coming names. Once upon a time, this gentleman called Malik was an up and comer. Back at the sort of tail end of seventh, beginning of eighth, my buddy Conrad told me about this guy that was going to start winning everything. You know, a few editions later, we've got this new guy on the scene, David, he's smashing everyone. Why don't we talk about the serial winners of the future? Who are some up and coming names and what about them do you think makes them special? Totally. Well, look, you, you, you've mentioned Dave already, you know, like uh, uh, I'd like to think or I'd like to uh, say that, you know, we had an, a big impact on him in, in terms of dice down. And, you know, uh, I know Dave personally, so I know some of the goals he has for, for Warhammer. Uh, so I've no doubt we will we'll continue to see that, you know. I think Dave still, like, if you if you analyze his wins, you know, they were with extremely dominant armies. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, you know, one of the other features we didn't talk about is if you look back now, you know, at their peak, uh, all these other names we were talking about, and you look at when they lose uh, rather than when they win, almost always exclusively it's to another top player. Uh, so there's a moment in time you get to where actually you cut out all of the losses that are unnecessary, let's say, where you're maybe against a less experienced opponent or you have list advantage. Uh, and arguably, you could say that Dave still has kind of one of these losses in him. So, you know, if, if he's able to cut that out, then absolutely. And it's probably a similar story. One of the other names that I wanted to mention is, is Naz, which I think has probably featured, took down finally his, his first super major out in the States. Uh, I think, are we still waiting for him to take a UKTC super major? I feel like we are. Indeed, I don't believe he's actually won anything prominent in the UK. It's always like, what are these jokes? Everyone thinks he's a serial winner in the UK, but in fact, he's never won anything. I think Adepticon was his first event win, if not definitely his first event win of over 100 players. And Adepticon is obviously famously known as like the granddaddy of 40k tournaments. It's almost the one that, you know, Reese and Frankie said inspired them to set up LVO. So the irony there is quite, quite tangible. 
and uh, he got very close this year, or Leo just gone, beg your pardon, at the LGT, just getting pipped to the post in the final. And uh, same with Leicester, pipped to the post in the final. You know, he's sort of, he's got a lot of trophies, but they mostly say second and third on them. 100%. But I think there's there's no doubt, you know, and uh, known as, uh, even though I, I spend a lot of time teasing him, uh, you know, he, he will make that. You know, his thought process, his list building uh, is extremely strong. And as, as he actually figures out his play style and similar, you know, uh, like cuts out the unnecessarily losses, uh, he'll start to, to really kind of see that through. And then um, for me, they're kind of, they're definitely biased picks, but like uh, Clem and Dan on our team. Uh, so uh, Clem's record recently is actually unbelievable. And uh, it starts to scream uh, serial winner because it's extremely dominant in the local scene. Um, I don't know how much will we see Clem kind of traveling to tournaments, which is definitely going to be a holdback. Uh, but otherwise, you know, has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and then, of course, Mr. Whitaker. Uh, so took down that that first super and then got woefully close at a, a big tournament recently as well. So um, I think we'll see more and more from them. And then one uh, other pick, uh, uh, just because I have all the time in the world for him and actually won a big tournament at the Northeast Open, uh, but Mr. John Swallow as well. Uh, I think, you know, then then followed that up by kind of coming runner-up, if I'm not mistaken, at Leeds. So um, I think we'll see a little bit more from John. Indeed, we will see more of John. We're going to see him at the Invitational, where, of course, we will see you as well, Malik. Now, just to round things off, we have obviously already done bets on with Big G for the different Invitationals. We've got the Pros, the Ams, and the Unconquerables. Now, we won't ask you to pick the best in the Ams, which is, of course, your division, but who do you think are the hottest competition from the Unconquerables and from the Pros? Gosh, uh, let me just see if I can find the list. Um, so I think, uh, so from the pros, uh, has Ines sneaked into the pro list because of his podcast? He has, well, he is a full-time 40K player, so he is very much in the pros. <laughs> cool. So uh, I'll pick Ines uh, from there. I think, you know, uh, we have to go with that name. Uh, I think, again, it's a really intentional choice, but Vic is not playing the Invitational so he can focus on the main event or else probably would have been one of my picks uh, from the pros if he would have snuck into there with the, the Fireside podcast. Um, and then from the up and coming, uh, is John in that list? John Swallow is in that list. Yeah, they're not up and comers. They've come. They've already won. Uh, they've, come. they've gone five they and un- unconquerable. Oh, they are unconquerable. In that case, it's easy. That, that, that's Mr. Whitaker if he's in the unconquerable list. Forgive me, I've got the, the three lists in, in different names, but uh, then I'm going to pick Dan uh, on the unconquerable. Okay. All right, gentlemen and ladies, that is it for today. We are going to have Malik back on the show when we've got some pairings to discuss. But until then, thank you so much for coming on, Malik. It's always been a pleasure to chat to you, and I wish you the best of luck in the Invitational this year. Thank you again, Zach, and we'll speak soon. For tuning in to what's happening in 40K. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving us a five star review on your favorite podcast platform and recommending us to all your gaming buddies. And of course, don't forget to subscribe for more great content from what's happening in 40K. 
We'll be back next time with even more news, updates, and opinions from the world of Warhammer 40,000. Until next time, thanks for listening.